Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. If you have your Bible, if you'd open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and put a marker in Luke 12, we're actually going to hit both of these really quickly at the beginning of the message. And let me tell you, as we continue our stumbling block series, uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, there's been a little bit of excitement about our topics because we can all agree to kind of hate the things we've talked about so far. For instance, nobody loves fear, right? So you preach against fear and everybody's like, yes, this is great. Or, you know, nobody loves insecurity. So it's not like, uh, you know, anybody is disappointed we're preaching against insecurity. But this weekend, some of you are going to hate this, okay? Because we're going to talk about a stumbling block that many of us love. It's easy to get excited about the teachings on stumbling blocks that we hate. It's probably a lot harder to navigate enduring teachings on the stumbling blocks we love. What we're talking about this weekend is money. We are talking about yo money. More specifically, the love of money. All right? First Timothy chapter 6 is a very powerful chapter and, and passage on money and our perspective of money. Listen to what verse 10 says. For the love of money. So it doesn't just say for money. It says, the love of money is the root, the undercurrent of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Please hear my heart. Scripture doesn't say money is bad, but it can be. It isn't inherently evil. But man's perspective of it and relationship to it certainly can be. So as we talk about money, let's uh, set aside our presuppositions. Let's set aside our judgments. Some of you might be new to our church and you haven't been around long enough to know where we stand on this topic. Uh, And so I would say suspend judgment until the end. Because if in your mind, if you're new to our church and in your mind you're thinking, here we go again. Preachers talking about money. Okay, maybe give it another half hour before you make that judgment. Okay? We're going to do what we've done the last couple of weeks. We're going to answer two questions on the topic. So here's question number one. What's so dangerous about the money-loving me? I'm going to give you five things. Here's the first one. The money-loving you forgets where money comes from. Now, if you put a marker in Luke chapter 12... Flip over there, but put the marker in 1 Timothy 6 because we're going to end up back there at the end of the message. Let me give you the background, a little bit of background on Luke chapter 12. In many Bibles, the heading of this particular passage in Luke 12 is the parable of the rich fool. And the reason this parable is so harshly named is because that's what Jesus calls this man at the end of the story. Okay, so, so just remember, this is the parable of the rich 
fool. And we're going to see what makes this rich man. Not all rich people are fools, but this guy was. And you're going to see what made this rich man so foolish. And one of the things I believe that made him so foolish was he forgot where money came from. You could tell he was convinced money comes from him. Whatever he earned, he felt like he owned. Now watch how Jesus tells this brilliant story starting in verse 16 of Luke 12. Then Jesus told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm. He doesn't just say a farm. Jesus gets really specific about this piece of dirt. It was a fertile piece of dirt that produced very fine crops, very special crops, abnormal crops. It wasn't like the crops produced on other pieces of dirt. I personally wonder if the reason Jesus wasn't so specific about this piece of dirt, I wonder if it was because he was kind of quietly pointing back to Psalm 24 verse 1, which says, the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. All the dirt beneath my feet is the Lord's. And everything in it, the world and all its people, belong to him. The money-loving me forgets that God owns everything. Here's what's really kind of unsettling about that. If I think money comes from me, here's the problem. Then all the pressure to make it is on me. I have to become my own provider. It's actually a good thing that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That he is provider and I am not. But the money loving me convinces itself money comes from me. Money belongs to me. I've read this passage to you that I'm about to read before. If you've been at our church for any amount of time, you probably heard me read this passage. It's just after the single greatest offering in all of human history. King David was the one that wrote the check, so to speak. And listen to what he says after he gives this multi-billion dollar in present day equivalent. Listen to what he says after this multi-billion dollar offering. Second Chron- uh, First Chronicles 29, verse 14, David says, but who am I and who are my people? In other words, I know I just gave this, but uh, who am I? This doesn't make me anything. And who are these people that we could give anything to you, God? Everything we have has come from you. And we give you only what you first gave us. This is not how the money loving me or you talks. This is how the God loving you talks. Here's the second thing that's so dangerous about the money loving you. The money loving you is self-focused. A life with it's my money as a mantra always has me as its favorite subject. One of the things you will see about the love of money is it is often tied to the love of me. It's hard to have the love of money and not have an ungodly love of myself. You will see this all throughout scripture. Let's keep going to verse 17. The the rich man says to himself, okay, now Jesus, remember, is telling this story. Now he's talking about a rich guy who's talking to himself. The man says to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said to himself, I know 
Okay, think about this for a sec. This guy's talking to himself about himself, about his stuff. And if in these five verses you were to count, I count 13 personal pronouns in five verses. I think Jesus is doing this on purpose. He's trying to connect the love of money with the love of me. It reminds me of a silly poem that kind of helps us hear how the love of money and the love of me, how they talk together. I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests and all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate all the sandwiches while I drank up the tea. "'Twas also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me." Silly, I know. So is the way I talk when I'm stuck in the, loving, the money-loving me spot. That sounds silly. There's a lot of talk about me. The love of money creates a love of me by me that is not godly. The two go hand in hand. Here's the third answer. What's so dangerous about the money loving you? The money loving you never has enough. Verse 18. Remember, the rich guy is still talking to himself. Okay? He says, so here's what I'll do. He says, I know. Here's my solution. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. Have you ever noticed how material things have a way of losing their appeal? You, maybe you set a financial goal of something, I, I want to save up for this because once, once I can do that, it, it, life's just going to be great. Isn't it funny how once you get to it, what yesterday seemed like more than enough, tomorrow can quickly become not near enough. Have you ever thought about why? Because material things quickly lose their appeal. This guy says, here's my solution. I just need more. I just need more space for more stuff. That's what I'll do, and then it will all be fine. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, those who love money will never have enough. Scripture doesn't say they'll rarely have enough. It says, Preston, 100% of the time, the money-loving you will never, ever have enough. No matter what you have, you will never be able to celebrate it because the money-loving you never has enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. I remember years ago, uh, back when I first started on staff at Gateway in Dallas, uh, Holly was still moving here. We weren't engaged yet. And uh, a couple weeks in to me being on staff, we were tearing down after the service. At that time, we had to set up and tear down every weekend. And so I, I was helping tear down everything. And Pastor Robert came up to me and he said, are you going to marry this girl? And I said, yeah, pretty, pretty sure I am. He said, well, when are you going to get engaged? And I said, well, I have a few goals before I propose. And he kind of got a smirk and he goes, like what? And I said, well, uh, I have $15,000 in school loans that I want to completely pay off and I want to have $10,000 in savings. And he starts laughing out loud. Now, looking back on the story, maybe he was laughing because he knew at that time 
I was on his payroll making $24,000 a year. <laughs> Just do the math on that one. <laughs> okay? I couldn't have even paid all of that, done what I wanted to do financially if I would have you know, put every dime towards those two things. He's laughing. And here's what he said. If money is the reason you're waiting to get engaged, you never will. And I, I, I remember standing there thinking, really? I thought I just said the right thing. Like, I actually thought you'd be impressed with what I just said. He said, Preston, if love isn't enough, money never will be. And what you'll find is even if you get to that place, even if you pay it off and you get to 10000 what you'll find as it relates to money is you'll think you need more. If you love her, propose to her. Well, I use that as my number one reason to be like, saddle this thing up and let's go. <laughs> I mean, I thought I had to pay all this stuff up. Let's go. And I, it, it was literally two weeks and I, I was, I was, we were proposed and first we started out, it was like 12 months. We're going to get married in 12 months. That literally lasted a week. We got, we said, okay, five months, let's, let's just be done. doesn't matter how much debt we have, school debt. doesn't matter how little uh, I have in savings. I love you. You love me. Let's get married. Here's the deal. The money loving me never has enough. Never. It's never enough. No matter what he has. If that me is in love with money, it will never, ever be enough. Here's the fourth thing. The money loving you sees money as the solution to everything. Keep going in verse 19. So remember, man says to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and have more space for more stuff. He says, then I'll sit back and say to myself, this guy loved to talk to himself, clearly. I'll sit back and say to myself at that point, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. The implication here is no matter what happens in the years to come, you're good. So eat, drink, and be merry. Money has a hold on me when I believe it can solve my problems for me. Proverbs 18 verse 11 says, the rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. They imagine it to be a high wall of safety. One of the things I've learned about money and seeing it as a, a strong tower, I personally believe if I see money as the best way to protect me from anything that can happen in the future, God will decrease my money. He will allow it to decrease and increase my hard times simply so he can teach me, he alone protects me. Money can't protect me. My God protects me. And here's the fifth thing. The money loving you, and this one's the hard one, loves God less. The money loving me, according to scripture, loves God less. Keep going in verse 20. But God says to the rich man, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Some translations say rich toward God. 
Earthly prosperity means absolutely nothing if it causes spiritual poverty. This is what Jesus is helping us understand. Preston, it does not matter how earthly prosperous you are, how prosperous earthly you are. It doesn't matter if it causes you to be spiritually poor. Think about it like this. What's the point of being rich in this life and poor in the next? It gets worse. My favorite chapter in the New Testament, Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now watch the two different masters he's talking about. You cannot, Preston, serve God and be enslaved to money. The money-loving me loves God less. My relationship with money is out of order when it gets in the way of God's relationship with me. Notice, I'm not saying when it gets in relationship, it gets in the way of my relationship with God. It's worse than that. The love of money is completely out of order when it gets in the way of God's relationship with me. Preston, you will love one and hate the other. Which one will you love? You have to pick. Think about this in the context of our city, the city where our church is, Scottsdale. Mammon, the spirit of mammon ruling everywhere. I know it's important on the earth. I think it's even more important in a city like ours. I can't, I can't have it both ways. If I'm going to love money, I'm going to love God less. When I think about how this plays out, it's not just something that can be enumerated. I think about breaking the Sabbath. When I was in a season of time where I was breaking the Sabbath consistently early on in my career ministry, I just think about how God was feeling when I was doing that every week. Let me, let me just submit to you to think about it like this. Let me give you like the little boy, little girl way to think about breaking the Sabbath. I wonder if the way God feels when I break the Sabbath, I think some of us think it's, it's like this ruler dictator who's angry when we do it. What if it's more like the seven-year-old little boy or little girl that we grew up with and on Saturday mornings, our neighbor friend spent all week wanting to spend the day with us. And he or she, first thing on Saturday morning, comes to the door knocking. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Come out and play. Let's spend the day together. On the other side of the door, I, you say, not today. But today's our day. We always play together on Saturday. On the other side of the door, I say, not today. Today's not our day. Today's my day. I'm just going to do my thing today. The money loving me sees everything as mine. Every day, every dollar. It's all mine. And that's why the money loving me is so dangerous 
That brings us to the second question. How do we overcome the love of money? First, put God first financially. Put God first financially. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce, Preston. Then he'll fill your barns with grain. Your vats with, will overflow with good wine. Okay. I, I, verse 10 is great. I, I love that God throws this in there that, you know, if I'll honor God with the best of what I produce, then he'll respond. That's great. But honestly, at this stage of my life, I really don't care about his response. I care more about his request. God's saying, Preston, I love it when you do this. I love it when you honor me with the best part of everything you make in this life. I love it. Well, here's the question. What's the best part of everything you produce, everything you earn? I'll tell you what the best part is. The best part of what you earn is the first part. The Bible calls it the first fruits. When the first thing I do with my money is return it to the Lord. And you will hear us use that phrase at this church. We don't, when we talk about the tithe, which means 10th, literally, and it's the first part. When we talk about the tithe, we don't talk like this. We don't say give the tithe. We say return the tithe. I'm going to show you why. Okay? But, but we return it here. And this is the statement. Every time I return the first part, the best part of what I earn to the Lord, here's the statement it makes. My maker is more important to me than my money. And so he is first. The tithe is evidence of a God-first life at the expense of a me-first lifestyle. Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, Every tithe of the land, God is saying this, every tithe, Preston, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. You know what this word holy means? Altogether separate. In other words, tithe meaning tenth, so there are ten tenths as it relates to everything I earn, everything you earn. God says in Scripture, Preston, I see the first tenth differently than I see the other nine tenths. It's mine. First and foremost, it's mine. The tithe belongs to me. But it's not just that. I see it differently than the other nine tenths. Let me try and illustrate this, okay? The heart, I believe God desires to see from us as it relates to the tithe. Let's take it all the way back to seven-year-old little boy, seven-year-old little girl. And let's say I was hundreds of years ago working in the fields to earn my keep. And my father owned the field, okay? So I'm waiting to get this picture. Over here, my father, my earthly father, and over here, my heavenly father. The end of the week, I go to my father to be paid for my labor. And my father, let's just say, pulls out 10 $10 bills to pay me $100 for the week. Here's the heart, the little boy, little girl heart, I believe God desires to see from me as it relates to his tithe. I put my hand out and my earthly father puts that first 10 in my hand, as he goes to grab the second 10, here's the heart I believe God desires to see from his little boy. I'll be right back. 
here. Take it, take it. I know it's only $10, but maybe you can put it together and, and, and buy a, a, an apartment complex for single moms. My $10 can't do it, but if we put all of our $10 together, we could do it. Here, take, take it. Whatever you do with it, Lord, it's yours. And then I go back. <laughs> Give me my money. I can call the 910th mine only because he allows me. But remember the principle of consecration. This is why we named our daughter Elizabeth, Riley Elizabeth. When the first is dedicated to God, the rest is blessed. I come back for the 910th. I think some of us see the tithe in an ungodly way. We, we, we get in this narrative that it's some kind of get-rich-quick scheme for the church. I'm going to tell you something I've never told you before. Can I tell you the worst part of my job? Knowing I'm going to have to stand before the God of the universe one day and answer for every dime Every time. Some of you are like, I don't ever want to be Preston. And that's wisdom. <laughs> but you think it's because I don't like public speaking. I don't like all that stuff. And that's great. But let me tell you one of the biggest reasons why you shouldn't want to be me. I've got to stand before the Lord and answer for every dime. So I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you. There's a part of me that when I talk about this wants to say, please don't tithe more. Because that just means I'm going to have to be responsible for more. Now, I'm not being literal, but this is serious. This isn't about amassing more. You got to remember, none of this is mine. None of this is the staff's. None of it. It's all the Lord's. All of it. All of it. I could be gone tomorrow. It's all his. It's not mine. Please hear my heart. We don't back away from teaching on the tithe. Here's why. Because the Bible's so clear on it. But let me also say, if you've come to church here for a while, you probably noticed something. On a weekly basis, we don't really talk about the tithe. We don't steer you to the offering boxes, not that there's anything wrong with that. But let me tell you why. This is the way it's been for nearly 10 years now. Because that's between you and the Lord, not between you and me. It's not between you and me. It's between you and the Lord. Now, for those of you who have never tithed before, let me just tell you, let's shoot straight, okay? Tithing seems easy when we're talking about $10. Let me tell you something I've learned. Tithing seems harder if you do it a certain way. The only time tithing seems to get harder is when you count the pennies more than you count the percentage. The easiest way to see the tithe is to count the percentage, not the pennies. I have friends who have navigated this and I've watched. And, and it was easy to tithe when it was hundreds or thousands. And then it seemed like it got harder when it was tens of thousands, 
hundreds of thousands, millions. One friend has billions. Here's the deal. If I'm counting pennies, it's even possible, and I've heard this statement come out of mouths before. Well, my income has gotten to a level where the church just can't handle my tithe. I've actually heard this before. If you said that, I'm not trying to attack you, I promise. Okay? I'm not going to lie. I have some friends who have said that before. My tithe has gotten to a place where it's too big for the church to be able to handle. Okay, remember, the tithe isn't the church's. The tithe is the Lord's. And the Lord says, bring it into the storehouse so that there will be food in it. He's the one that says, bring it into the house of the Lord. It's his, not the church's. The church is just responsible for stewarding it, but it's his, not the church's. In my opinion, it's impossible to overcome the love of money without putting God first financially. Do you know how romantic that is? Money is such a big thing on the earth. Do you know what a big deal it is to put God first financially? I don't care if you leave this church and you go somewhere else. I'm going to shoot straight with you. The principle of the tithe isn't leaving just because you leave. It's not leaving the book. God set it up this way. What kind of a pastor would I be if I ran away from teaching you God's word? Here's the answer. Not a very good one. To overcome the love of money, we have to put God first financially. Here's the second way. Be content with what you have. The word content means an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13, some of the most poignant as it relates to contentment. Paul says, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty one, whether with plenty or with little. And watch this next verse that you might have memorized as a kid in Sunday school for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Remember how we talked about last week, Psalm 46? Many of us memorized verse one, but not verses two and three. I wonder how many of us Memorize verse 13, but not 11 and 12. I can do all things. I can scale walls if God gives me strength. That's great. I've heard that verse used out of context so many times. Here would be my question. But can you be content in a world that's run by money when God gives you the strength? What's one of the ways that I know money in my mind has become the the solution to all my problems? Well, if I'm experiencing a lot of stress, I just go buy something. Because money will give me that hit. Here's what you'll learn. That hit doesn't last very long. Contentment lasts far longer than overspending. 
Paul says, it is an incredible thing to learn how to be content with much or to be content with little. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. Here's the way I believe it's easiest to do that. Enjoy what you have as if it's all you will ever have. Hold it as special. Don't idolize it. And don't white knuckle it. Just hold it as special. When you get to go out and have a nice meal with your family, don't act like it's no big deal just because you know you can do it again tomorrow because you got the money for it. Be the seven-year-old little boy, little girl. Be the you back in college when you were wearing white athletic socks with black dress shoes. Who would go to Denny's and get two grand slams and think he won the lottery. Contentment always involves gratitude, no matter how much or how little there is to be grateful for. Henry David Thoreau said in his journal on March 11th, 1856, that man is the richest whose pleasures are cheapest. A man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to let alone. Contentment. Here's the last answer. How do we overcome the love of money? Store it up where its value can't go down. Anybody ever put money into an earthly investment and lost money? Can we just put our hands up? Anybody been around the last couple of months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. good, good, good. Good to see you, good to have you. <laughs> Happens a lot, doesn't it? Sometimes it goes up, but it's almost like the casino it feels like. The house always wins, right? That, that's the statement. Some of you are like, Preston just used the word casino in a sermon. I did. Just, just think about this. I wonder if God isn't peering over the balcony of heaven when my investment portfolio goes down, my retirement, and just watches how my heart responds. I wonder which would involve me, which would cause me to get more stressed if the God of the universe got up and left our time together and said he's not coming back or if my investment portfolio went down 50% in 72 hours. Here's the scary part. Whichever one would stress me the most indicates which of the two I love the most. And so I believe one of the keys to overcoming the love of money is to store it up where its value is never going down. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus said, Don't store up treasures here on earth, Preston, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in with inflation and steal 25% of it. Sorry, I added that last part just for, <laughs> sorry. I know scripture says don't add to. I was just being silly, but it sure feels like inflation is this. Thief, thief. I drive a diesel truck. I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive right now. <laughs> 
please hear my heart because I know we have many in our church that are, are getting close to retirement age. Planning for retirement is wisdom because what, what is retirement? What is planning for retirement? It's planning for life after work, but before death, right? So planning for retirement is wisdom. Please don't, don't hear that what I'm saying is everything goes to the kingdom or to others. I'm not saying that. It's wisdom to plan for life before death. But I also say this, while planning for life before death is wisdom, not planning for life after death is disastrous. Now, if you put a marker back in 1 Timothy 6, we're going to end with this. So go back over to it. This passage in Matthew chapter 6 is for rich people. It says as much. Tell those who are rich in this world. Now, what some of you are thinking as it relates to this sermon is, ha ha, that means this message ain't for me because I ain't rich. Okay, I, I believe I've devised a way, a test, so to speak, that will help each of us understand whether or not we are rich. And, and here's how we figure it out. A rich person is anyone who knows at least one person who makes less or has less than they do. So we're going to do something we've never done in nearly 10 years as a church. We're going to take a test to see how many of us are rich. Remember, a person is rich if they know at least one person who makes less or has less than they do. You ready to take this test? Okay, before we read 1 Timothy 6, so that we know who in the room and online this applies to. Because it only applies to the rich. Okay, you ready? How many of us know at least one person who makes less or has less than we do? Okay, look around. Okay, this is terrible. We are a church of rich people. I'm going to need to take some time and pray about this. I was not expecting this. We're a church of rich people. Some of you are so bothered right now, and I love it. Let me tell you why. Because there's a wrestling match going on in your soul between God and mammon. And I get it. I get it. This is a tough one. I'm not attacking you. We're all in different places. Please don't feel any judgment whatsoever. But it's never a bad thing to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Here's the passage. 1 Timothy 6, 18. Command those who are rich in this world to do good. Command them to be rich in good deeds. Command them to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up or heap up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is it. Those of us who are rich in this world 
We're commanded to do good. To be generous with our deeds, but also with our dollars to those around us. When the Holy Spirit, checking out at the grocery store, says, Preston, I get it. Everything is 20% more expensive than it was. But this woman behind you is counting every penny because she knows she doesn't have enough to pay. I want you to swipe your card and pay for her groceries. Jesus said, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. Who's the least of these? Anybody and everybody that's not being paid attention to by everybody else. Preston, here's what I want you to do. I want you to store up treasure in heaven. I am the God who gives. Son, the most famous verse on the earth declares I'm a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave. Preston, you're my son. Sarah, you're my daughter. This isn't about money. It's about being generous like me. Pressing in a world that's run by money on paper, one of the ways to get the world's attention is to not love it the way they do. And the way, son, you prove you don't love it the way you do is you let go of it more easily than they do. So let me just tell you, a couple of things going on this week. Just a divine coincidence that we're preaching on this this weekend. This week, our Tempe campus uh, closed. I don't mean closed. We transitioned it as a campus at the end of last year. But the sale of the campus closed. And I don't have the time to tell you the whole backstory, but when Pastor Phil and Christ Life came to us and said, this is what we're feeling, would the elders pray? And we prayed, and we felt the Lord asking us to get involved and to make it a campus. It took about a year before I went back to our elders and I said, guys, I, I'm not so sure that God gave this campus to us for us. And one of our elders said, well, what does this mean? And I said, I think there's a Joshua. I think we're just supposed to hold on to this until Joshua's ready. And so a couple more years went by. And towards the end of last year, when I went to the elders and said, I feel like the Lord's spoken and said, this campus is to transition now. And they had questions and I didn't have answers. Less than 48 hours later, we get an email at night from a senior pastor's son, a worship pastor down in the Tempe Chandler area. A church that was being kicked out of their building because their, their building was gonna be torn down. They didn't know what they were gonna do. He reached out and he said, 
I don't even know if you guys are even thinking about selling. He said, but would you think about selling this to us, leasing it to us, or giving it to us? We kind of laughed at the third one, but. <laughs> Less than 48 hours after the Lord made it clear it was time to transition. Wouldn't you know, God gives the spirit of faith to this young guy in his mid-20s. And we sat down with them, began a relationship with them. And here's my favorite part of the story. Within 48 hours of, of the elders deciding, we would put that campus up for sale. We'd spoken to no one about it. Not too long after that, after this church got involved, a senior living company reached out to us and made an offer on the property. With the church, we had decided we're not going to make a dollar on this. Because think about it. Why would we charge God money with his money? The senior living company came in and offered us a lot more. A lot more. But we didn't bat an eye. Here's why I'm telling you this story. If you're a tithing member of this church, you didn't know it. But you helped a church buy a church this week in the middle of a worldwide pandemic where churches are closing. You helped a church buy a church. Their attendance has gone up nearly 50% since they moved in in December. God is moving, but they couldn't have done it if you were more in love with money than you were with God. And I believe when you get to heaven one day, you're gonna see God's response to not taking the higher offer and to keeping it in the family of God. And here's what's even more awesome. The morning that I knew that we were gonna close this last Wednesday, I was having my early time with the Lord and he's kind of established the rules for our time together and one of them is don't be on your phone in this room. And, but I have music playing in there so my phone's close. And after a while of being in there and being with him, I felt him say, go to your phone, it's time to find the house of Bethany, which is what we're calling or, or it looks like we will call our apartment complex for single moms. It didn't take six minutes. Found a place that just went up the beginning of May. Uh, it, it checks more boxes than any place we found so far. And it appears that it's possible that we may put an LOI on this property. Step out in faith. And at a time where housing is getting more, expens more expensive than ever in this valley, you, as tithing members of this church, saw fit that this is the perfect time to protect some incredibly brave women from some really tough situations, to get them out 
of their living situation presently and put them in a safe home. Now, don't tell anyone I told you this, this next part, but we're not trying to make money on this. We're going to charge them rent, but we're going to save it all up. And when they move out after 12 months or so, we're going to give them every dime that they paid. Who is we? Those of us who are trying to choke out the love of money in our lives and be a part of what God's doing on the earth. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.